Our Old Testament reading for today comes from Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Well, in AD 203, the Roman government arrested a 22-year-old woman named, a Christian woman named Perpetua. How's that for a name? The problem wasn't so much that she worshiped Jesus. Her crime was that she worshiped Jesus only. She refused to worship any other gods. And as a result, she was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. And this dangerous idea that Christ alone provides the way to God is as scandalous today as it was 2,000 years ago. And for many, this is a hard saying. It's this idea, or the question we might ask up on screen, is there only one true faith? Or the objection is, how can you say that there is only one true faith? Well, let's just read John 14 and 3. Excuse me, John 14 and 6, and I'll start in verse 3. I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, from where I am, uh, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So here is this hard saying. There is only one true faith. We're talking about our series is the hard sayings of the Bible. And the deduction from Jesus' words in this statement is that, that, that there is only one true faith. And as we've been doing, as we've been moving through, this is our third sermon, I want to explore a little bit the criticism that comes along with this hard saying, that Jesus is the only way. And this is a hard one for a lot of people, this idea that there is only one true way to God. It's hard for people. It's hard for people to accept. And maybe more so today than at any time that I can remember. They'll say things like, are you saying that if a person doesn't believe in Jesus, they're actually going to hell? That's so narrow. That's so arrogant. That's so insensitive. So intolerant. Perhaps some of you have thought that very thing. One of the things I don't ever want to assume is that every one of us here are completely and totally convinced Christians on every level of doctrine. Because we're human beings and though we may believe something, sometimes there are nagging voices in the back of our head that we don't exactly know how to answer or to deal with and maybe you've thought that. Maybe this has been something you have struggled with. We all have family and friends who don't believe, don't we? Every one of us. And we love these people. 
And it's hard to accept that people we love might be eternally lost, isn't it? It's not easy. We don't rejoice over that. We may love the Lord, but we love these people too. We want them to be saved. We want, we want to at least have the confidence or the hope that we would spend eternity with these people that we love dearly. There are people in my life, family members, who do not believe. And no matter how many times I've attempted to share my faith with them, I get you know, the sort of the stiff arm. They just don't want to hear it. A particular family member back in California, my parents, invited, you know, for 40 years to church, would never come, never on any occasion, ever, no matter how special it was. And I wrestle with that. I think about that all the time. We live at a time of inclusiveness, and this idea that there's only one true faith, one true way to God, that Jesus is the only way to God does not seem to our culture very inclusive, does it? Some time ago, an LA Times article titled, No Religion Has a Monopoly on God's Truth, asks this question, or asked this question. Is it possible to proclaim the truth of your own faith and at the same time agree that other religions are also paths to salvation? As paradoxical as that may seem, two religious thinkers, one Christian and another Jewish, say that must happen as the United States becomes a nation of growing religious diversity, end quote. The Christian writes, we're called to follow, but there is no blueprint. If we do follow, we still do so, recognizing that we don't see the whole picture, he said. There might be non-Christian companions with us who also witness to God's truth. For the sake of the gospel, he said, Christians need to be open to the Spirit's leading, end quote. In other words, his perspective is, we don't really have the whole picture, and so there must be a kind of religious humility, if you will, that we need as we follow Christ, because, well, we don't have the blueprint for salvation. It's sort of murky, is what he's saying. I assume this kind of thinking is the inspiration behind the coexist bumper stickers. I think we have a slide for that. Have you ever seen these? Right? Coexist. And it's, you know, somebody somewhere at a university thought up, you know, all of the different religious symbols and put them together. And the sentiment on the surface seems, you know, gracious enough. Can't we all just get along? But it's really a part of sort of a worldview that embraces like religious pluralism, the idea that like all religions are equally valid and they're all true. I, I, I saw another bumper sticker a while ago that said, contradict, they, they can't all be right. <laughs> and indeed, <laughs> that's true, right? You cannot have two things saying the opposite thing at the same time and be right. So there's a problem with this essential idea that basically all religions teach the same thing but in different ways and are therefore equally valid. And this view, this idea is sort of illustrated by a Hindu text about a group of blind men describing an elephant. You may be familiar with the story, I'll describe it. One man touches the trunk of the elephant and says, feels like a snake. 
And another touches its ear and says, it feels like a fan. The third man places his hand on the elephant's leg and says, it's like a tree trunk. The fourth touches his side and says, it's like a wall. The fifth holds the tail and finds it rope-like. And finally, the last man feels a tusk and declares that the elephant is like a spear. And I think it's meant to paint a picture of our limitations, but the tale only works because the narrator is not blind. And so the real arrogance seems to be the person looking at all the religions of the world who says, I see what you all don't see. And when you think about it that way, you can realize that that's where the real arrogance comes in. It's someone who proposes to be able to stand outside and above all of the world's religions and for all of their mental frailty and ignorance, they can see what the rest of them don't see. Now, obviously you see the problem with that. Now I was gonna stand up here this morning and one by one sort of knock down all the logical fallacies with the objections to the exclusive claims of Jesus. I don't wanna do that this morning. What I want to do is just speak from my heart to your heart about why I believe and why I feel and am convinced and persuaded that Jesus is the only way and that that claim is completely, a perfectly logical claim and why it makes sense. In this age of sort of post-truth that we live in, this age of inclusiveness, this idea that there is only one truth that leads to God. Now, I realize that it doesn't square culturally with the spirit of our age, does it? Right? As I've mentioned already several times, we live in this age of plurality and inclusiveness where everyone has a place at the table and everyone has their own truth. In 2016, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year was post-truth. And let me, I'll define what post-truth means. Just a show of hands, who's heard this word before, this phrase before? A couple of you, okay, post-truth. And it means that objective facts are less influential in shaping people's opinions than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And you've heard people say, haven't you? Well, that's your truth, but I've got my truth. Or that may be your version, but you know, I've got my own truth. And on some level, we get that. We understand that experience and belief is inherently personal. And there are things that other people may not be able to appreciate about the things that have shaped what you believe. But I think what we're saying about or what Jesus is saying, or about what it means to follow Jesus and believe his claims, his unique, exclusive claims to be the only way to God, is that what we believe corresponds to objective truth, objective reality. In other words, um, truth is only valid in so much as it reflects an objective reality or something that is real. Because if you are just believing something that makes sense to you, but you don't care, or it doesn't matter whether it's grounded in any reality, well, that's just fairy taleism. And I mean, truth doesn't function that way, right? 
You don't, you don't stand at the edge of a skyscraper and say, <clears throat> hey, I know that you say there's a thing called gravity, and if I lean forward and fall, or lean forward, you know, off this 37-story building, that you say I'm gonna fall and die, but that's not my truth. We don't treat any other area of our life this way. For some reason, we treat the idea of religious truth this way, and I would argue that it has a lot to do with the fact that for many people, this stuff just doesn't matter. And granted, the truth about what we believe in God is not the same as gravity, right? It's, it's if you believe or don't believe in God, you're not going to fall 37 stories to your death. But it still matters in that truth claims ought to respond or are meant to respond to some type of objective reality. In a post-truth age, we have the challenge of declaring the difficult responsibility of declaring that Jesus is the only way, still. Like the church has always declared from the very beginning. And I wanna propose this to you this morning that the alternative is really unacceptable because if Jesus is not the only way, he's not even a way, All right? Does that make sense? If Jesus is not the only way to God, he's not one way or a way. He's, not, he's no way at all. Jesus doesn't leave us that option in his words and in his teaching and in his revelation of who he is. He doesn't leave us that option. He tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And another thing that Jesus says, I think we have a slide for this, John 10 and 9. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now you all know how doors work, right? Maybe your home has a front door and a back door, right? Uh, and if someone comes through either of those doors, they are people who either you know or you've given a key to. But if at three in the morning someone comes through a window, um, you might reach for your gun because entering into the house that way is illegal and illicit and there are consequences for them trying to do that. And in the same way, Jesus wants us to think about anyone else who would come to God by some other entrance than himself as being illicit and not valid. In fact, Jesus even says that. Now I could stand up here and try to show someone, all the things that Jesus did to prove that he's God, all the public miracles, the raising of the dead, the healings, the walking on water, the casting out of demons, and his own death verified by professional executioners, Roman guards, and then his resurrection witnessed by over 500 eyewitnesses and their testimony. But let me suggest to you that at the end of the day, that this truth claim of Jesus, that he is the only way, that he is the way that the truth and the life is something that we know and are convinced of through our heads, our hearts, and our experience. I just wanna unpack all three quickly, okay? That we could, we could erect arguments that sort of interact logically and you know, technical arguments against objections to 
the exclusive, exclusive claims of Jesus. But I just want to say for a moment that we know that the claims of Jesus are true. And we know it here, we know it here, and we know it in the, the way we experience our own lives. Number one, let me start with, start with what happens in our mind. It doesn't take a biblical scholar to look at Jesus' teachings and realize that Jesus' life weaves together the biblical storyline in a way that is just breathtaking. I have many, many times thought about and tried to wrap my mind around whether, a, whether through human logic or reasoning or, or storytelling skill, the complexity of what the Bible is could have been logically written out in somebody who's you know, mapping out the story of a life who weaves and brings it all together. And I have concluded over and over and over again that is impossible. The Bible is so incredibly complex in a way, but also beautifully woven together in simplicity in the life of Jesus. It's like when you read the gospel and when you learn of the life of Jesus and look at his teaching and his power in his life, it makes this massive book of 66 books with all of its different genres and stories like almost come together in like a crystal clear vision that is supernatural and it's overwhelming and God makes it happen in our minds but we see that Jesus is sort of the key to unlock it all. And it's in a way we, it's hard to explain. I mean, look at what, Look at what it says in 1 John 5 and 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So yes, God works through our minds. So that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So we believe that Jesus is the only way because we understand it. It makes sense to us, not on our own strength, but by God's help. And it makes sense of the world around us. So Jesus doesn't just make sense of the Bible. He makes sense of the world. I once heard a Bulgarian missionary say, if Christianity didn't exist, we would have to invent it because nothing else makes sense of the world like Christianity does. And I just want to give a hearty amen to that. The gospel of Christ, the word of God, and the Christian faith makes sense of the world we're living in. The sinfulness of humans, the way that fear of death rules our lives and the guilt we carry and the hope and thought for eternity that everyone has. It speaks to all of that in a way that is magnificently coherent. That's what I'm trying to say. That... <clears throat> The gospel of Jesus and the Christian faith and the word of God gives a kind of coherency to life and the world that nothing else does. And it's a supernatural work of God in our minds. Secondly, and maybe more importantly, is what happens in our hearts when the spirit applies this knowledge. 1 John 3.19 by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So something is happening where it's not just being convinced in our minds, our hearts are liberated from the bondage of guilt. 
Our hearts are liberated from the condemnation of our shortcomings and the ways that we fail. We believe and know that Jesus is the only one true way because our hearts change, don't they? My brother died in 2003. He was 38 years old. And my brother, um, my brother was the son of my father's first marriage. My father married a Jewish woman. My brother was raised Jewish and she got an order against my father that he couldn't proselytize his son. And he was sort of a textbook child of a divorce. My brother's born in 1965. He grew up in the 70s. And the dis- level of dysfunction was just, he wasn't a believer. Uh, early experience in an experiment with drugs at 13, 14, arrested in and out of jail all through his teens and into his 20s. I mean, he was just about as rank an unbeliever as, I mean, it ever could be. And my brother converted and, and Christ saved him in his around 29 or 30. And at his funeral, a friend of his who was his best friend growing up spoke. And uh, he was Jewish, so he wasn't a believer in Christ. And they had just recently sort of uh, within the past few years before my brother passed away, got in contact with each other. And he got up and he said something that to me is sort of a summary of what the gospel does in our hearts. He said, Michael was my best friend. He says, but there were two Mikes. He says, uh, you know, you all know me. I'm Jewish. I don't believe in Jesus. He says, but there was the Mike before Jesus and the Mike after Jesus. And the Mike after Jesus was a completely different person. He said, in fact, it took me a couple years just to get to know this new person. And that statement that there are, that there are two people, that in us there's the, the sort of the experience of our lives before Christ and the experience of our lives after Christ. And no help, self-help program can do this to us. Someone like my brother, a dope addict, or maybe a prostitute or a gang member or a murderer, nothing else can make them into loving, grace-filled, godly members of society. I mean, there's no way to explain it, but Jesus can, and Jesus does all the time. He washes us and he cleanses us and transforms us into new creatures, and that is primarily a work of the heart. God changes our hearts. One of the promises of the Old Testament of the new covenant, the promise of the gospel is that God would take out the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh for us to be able to feel and perceive God and love him and love, truly love each other. Jesus washes us and cleanses us and transforms us into new creatures. And when this happens, something happens to the way we live our lives, we, you know, most of us live, a lot of people live with the fear of death. If not the fear of death, we think about death all the time. I don't know about you, I think about death every single day. If not consciously, subconsciously. It's always, it's always there on like a low frequency level. Like, you know, I'll, I'll go out to eat or grab a burger and I'll think, is there, you know, is there too much cholesterol in this meal right now? You know, I mean, I just, you know, I, you know, am I getting enough sleep? Am I healthy enough? You know, let me, I haven't been to the gym in two days. Like, it's always with us. And in some ways, that's sort of part of our just mortality. But something happens when Christ gets a hold of us and he gets a hold of our heart. We don't look at death the same way. We face death with a kind of courage and confidence. 
Because our hearts no longer condemn us. We're not afraid. In fact, I would say this, when Christ is really living in you and gotten a hold of you and has transformed your heart, yeah, you may not want to die, but you're not afraid of death. And I would sort of like pause the message for a moment to say, if you are afraid of death, could it be possible that you're not fully trusting in Christ? Not fully committing your life and your eternity, your eternal salvation to his hands. Something happens in our hearts. And it causes us to sort of like where the rubber meets the road on this issue. Right? Do we trust that Christ's promises and his claim to raise us also from the dead are real and true? And do we believe that? Nothing else, no other world system, world religion or, or system of belief promises that. Nothing else can. You can wait for medical science to improve. You can hope that it's going to get better and better to the point of prolonging your life. Or maybe, you know, being cryogenically frozen to be reanimated at some future point in time when technology catches up with you. Or you can trust in Jesus for eternal life. I remember uh, reading something a couple years ago about the first notion of being cryogenically frozen. And I think it happened in the 60s or the 70s. I'm not exactly sure. But the guy who proposed it was an engineer and he had no experience in that whole realm of like cryogenic freezing. But he had sort of like an initial rough draft of what it was. And he had people jumping up at the opportunity. And they were paying him, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 hours to be cryogenically frozen so that they could be reanimated in the future. And the corpses started to come in. And, you know, he just, he didn't know what to do with them. And he rented, you know, freezers and it just became this, this huge mess. But like, it's a fairy tale. You cannot, like there is no cryogenic freezing. It's an idea that's lived for the last generation, but like it's, it's, it's not real. But because we want so bad to live forever, it has sort of like endured for the last 40 or 50 years as like a potential idea. But it's just, it's not possible. And the fact that we are all preoccupied with living forever, forever ought to say something about the fact of how all human beings are wired. God created us with eternity in our hearts. That's what it says in Ecclesiastes. He put eternity in our hearts. We, we don't just want to live forever because we don't want to die. We want to live forever because there is something in all of our DNA that knows that there is something beyond this world. We don't have a super sharp picture of it, but the Bible does give us a picture. You can trust in the devices of men, in technology, you can trust in Christ for eternal life. And then third and finally, we believe in the exclusive truth claims of Jesus because we experience his power in our lives. So we know it with our head and we're not it's not because we're all nincompoops, right? There is something that happens in our minds where it makes sense of the world. Not as one version, but as sort of this all-encompassing vision of life. And then it gets down into our hearts and gives us an assurance of salvation. Removing our guilt and condemnation. Clearing the way 
for eternity. And there's also an experiential power that makes us not just theoretical. Isaiah 40, 29 says that he gives power to the faint and to him who have no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord, are you waiting upon the Lord this morning? Are you waiting on the Lord to renew your strength? Are you finding your strength in him? Are you looking to him in for your strength, or are you, are you living in your own power? You rely on your own strength. I, I, I would suggest that when Christians falter on this issue, it's because at some point we've stopped fully trusting in his power. But when you trust in his power, you experience his power. But they, verse 31, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, if you tell me I've never seen God's power in my life ever, I've never seen, God's never answered a prayer, I've never seen him, I just, I won't believe you. <clears throat> never seen anything supernatural, miraculous, I've, I won't believe it because I'm just an ordinary guy. I'm not some super saint or super Christian, but when I'm honest with myself, even though at this particular moment in your life, you may be experiencing trials where it is hard to see God or experience God or feel God, if you are honest with yourself, you'll have to admit that in your history with God, you've seen God move many times and answer many prayers. And when I say that that's my experience, I'm not being presumptive, like, oh, well, good for you, Jordan. That's your experience. That's not my experience. Listen, God loves us as his people. And he answers prayer. And he manifests his power in all sorts of ways. In ways we don't see and in ways we do see. And this is, this is one of the reasons why it's so important to, to give thanks. Which is hard to do if you're not content. Because when you give thanks, you walk back through your history. And remind yourself of all the times that God's power was displayed. God answered prayer. God moved. God did something. God was with you. And that gives us a kind of experiential reassurance. It's the inner testimony of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts testifying to us every day that God is real and that he loves us. God has proven himself to me with display after display of his power in my life. I remember my brother-in-law, who at the time was my best friend, we had just started going to church and our faith was sort of on fire. We were in our like late teens. And we had, I had moved out of LA. I was living in the high desert. So there were, you know, long stretches of road with desert on each side, you know, um, for miles before you came to a neighborhood or a streetlight. It was a newly developing community. This is back in like the early, early, early 90s. And him and I were just walking and we were sort of really strong in our faith and we were like, we were singing church songs and we were praying for God to give us a sign. It was dark outside in the desert, you could see all the stars. And I remember, you know, looking up, like, like looking for a star to like wink at me or do something. You know, I was looking for this supernatural and it was a cold night, you know, I think it was a winter night. It was cold and winter in California might be in the high 40s, but it was cold for us. And it was dark and we were just, sort of lift filled with faith and we were walking for miles and it was late and it was cold and a car pulled up 
out of nowhere. And it was a woman, you know, uh, an older woman. And we were two young guys. And she asked if we needed a ride. And we, well, sure, we jumped in. And within a few minutes, you know, she had shared with us that she was sort of, she was a part of like a network of churches that we went to, although we didn't know her and she didn't know us. And I look back on that now realizing that like, like it was God's way of saying like, I'm with you, but, but it wasn't like going to be this massive sign in the heavens like I wanted. And I was okay with that. And I think it taught me early on that God manifests his power in our lives in ways that we the ways that are unexpected that we're often not looking for. We're looking for like, you know, a star in the sky and God is speaking to us and manifesting his power supernaturally through the little mundane things in our life from day to day. And we have to be looking for God in those areas and be able to see God in those daily mundane things. And God does show up in those areas. All the time. God manifests his power in our lives. And when you're weak, he's strong. And he's always interceding and intervening on our behalf. And it's only by God's grace and power that you're even alive. Now, those are my three reasons, okay? We know God. We know, we, we know that there is one way to God, Jesus Christ. We know it with our head, our heart, and in our experience. But let me return to an objection, Okay? And I'm going to end on this. I want to address one final objection. And that's the problem of those who have never heard Christ. Because some of you may have been thinking, well, that's fine and dandy, Jordan. But what about, you know, someone who is the victim of historical or geographical accident, right? They lived in the Americas 1,500 years ago. Or aboriginal people, you know? 5,000 years ago. What about them? Um, those who have never heard of Christ? If Jesus is the only way to God, what is the fate of those who have never heard of him? And I want to tell you there is hope for them, okay? God's not unrighteous. God's not unjust. And he doesn't just judge people based on what they don't know. God judges people based on what they do know. And what do people who have never heard of Christ know? What do they know? Well, there are two truths that all humans know. Um, and that's one, that God exists, number one. We know this by observing the natural world around us. And number two, there's a moral law. We know this by experiencing our conscience within us. And every person who has ever, ever existed, even those who have never heard of Christ, has this knowledge that there is a God and an acute sense of right and wrong. And those who have never heard of Christ can respond to the light they have been given. So someone, I'm answering this because someone might be thinking, well, God is, that's unfair for those who have never heard. Now what happens if they don't respond to that revelation, right? The natural world pointing to the fact that there is a creator, a God, and the moral heart that lives within that pricks their conscience when they do something wrong, what happens if they don't respond to that revelation? Well, granted, they freely separate themselves from God. So to ask the question or answer the question, are they just victims of historical or geographical accident or bad luck because they lived and died in a place that the good news never reached? The answer is no. 
God has appointed the places and times in which all of us live sovereignly. God knows exactly where we are. And God gives us opportunities to respond to what we do know. And God creates optimal circumstances for people in any time, in any part of the world, in all of human history, opportunities to respond to him according to his divine will and plan. And I just want to end this morning with this one verse in Acts 17.26. Maybe you've never read this verse before. It says that he, God, he, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Listen, we can argue and try to prove this claim that there is only one way to God. We know that, we believe that. We also know that God is at work in the hearts of human beings who have not heard the message of the gospel. They often suppress the truth they've been given. And Christ has come to reveal God's plan of salvation, his perfect plan. We can confidently assert and say that Christ is the only way, and we know it. We can deny it, but we, those of us who have faith in him, we know it in our heads and in our hearts and in our experience. And a passage like this ought to encourage us that God isn't unjust. That God loves his creation, even though we're fallen, and even though people rebel. That God is always at work drawing people close to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that found us in the modern age, in this time in history. Thank you that even though we live in North America, which is by all definition the ends of the earth, that the gospel has reached us far from the place where Jesus lived and preached. Thank you, O God, for the gospel message going out. We thank you for the truth of this message. We thank you, O God, that we don't have to be ashamed to confidently assert that Christ is the way the truth, and the life. Lord, let this truth and message encourage and inspire us, O God, to love our neighbors, love them so much that we might share Jesus with them and not be ashamed in the same way that anything else that excites us we would share with friends and family. Lord, empower us to do it now by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.